Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Kurita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. We are very happy to have you with us today and please stay with us for this hour. Today we are going to talk about God's call to mission. I'd like to say hello to our panel today and it's good to have with us Brenton. Thank you, Nick. I'm looking forward to the study today. Hi, Joe. It's good to have you joining us. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure to be here. Denise, it's good to have you with us too. Thank you, Nick. I'm happy to be part of this group. Len, welcome to the program. Thank you and hello, listeners. And hi, Lija. It's good to have you joining us too. Yeah, I feel very blessed. Praise the Lord for that. Jerry, thank you for uh, joining us today and I would like to say hello to you, but thank you also for... Um, putting together this uh, study today, and you are going to facilitate this discussion. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. Another beautiful day. Wonderful. Well, Jerry, let's just begin, and uh, if you don't mind, please just take us through this. Sure. Listeners, over the last two weeks, we looked at how God intentionally reaches out to humanity in his desire to be with his children. He takes the initiative to establish a relationship with his children, as seen in the lives of Adam and Eve, and then, after sin enters, to re-establish that relationship through the implementation of the plan of salvation. We see a God who is determined to reverse the consequences of the fall. Time after time, God's mission to us is confirmed by his deep desire to be with his people, explaining the mystery of his master plan through ceremonies offerings and sacrifices, until finally, when the time had come, he, the creator of the universe, became Emmanuel, God with us, when he took on human flesh and lived among the human family. This week, we will focus on our response to God's call to mission. But before we do, let's ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance. Brenton, could you lead us in prayer, please? Certainly. <clears throat> Wonderful Father in heaven, we thank you for the call to mission. Each person who accepts you as Lord and Saviour is called to be a missionary. And we thank you, Lord, that the, the topic that we are going to study today in our Bible study leads us to see that God's plan for mankind was that his power and his glory and his creatorship and his saving grace would be seen throughout the world. Lord, I pray today as we study and as we think on this subject, it will help us to realise that in order to reach people that perhaps we would not normally do, I pray that we may realise that we may have to step out of our comfort zone. We may have to go into areas where we are not comfortable, uh, whether it be language, race or culture. We need to recognise that the call to mission is worldwide. We thank you that we have the privilege as a panel of sharing this with our listeners and we invite your Holy Spirit to empower us in order that we may share it with others and that they too may feel the call to mission. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, Jerry and panel, uh, just uh, before we moving on, um, just wondering if we will invite our listeners to join us. You know, our listeners can send us a text message with a question, a thought, a comment in regard to what we are um, talking and uh, why not to join us uh, my dear friend uh, and be part of this program you can send us a text message to 
please use this number and uh, share with us and we'll be very happy to uh, have you a part of the program. Also on this number, we'll come just a bit later with the offer which we have for you today. Please uh, make sure that you have this number um, written down, save it into your phone and use it. All right. Um, back to you, Jerry. Yes, thank you, Nick. Now, most people like to settle into a place they can call home, a place that is familiar to them and where they feel secure. It soon becomes their comfort zone, and it can be very unsettling when, especially through circumstances beyond their control, they are forced to relocate and start again. The biblical concept of mission signifies a purposeful movement, a going from one place to another for a specific reason, namely to spread the gospel. Now, Denise, would you like to read for us, please, Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9? And, and what were people wanting to do, and why did God have to intervene? That's the first question. And what does this tell us about their relationship with God or with the God whom Noah worshipped? Certainly, Jerry. I'm going to read from the clear word, and it's Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. At first, all the descendants of Noah had only one language. As they moved east from Mount Ararat, where the ark had settled, they made their homes in the plain of Shinar, also called Mesopotamia. After some time, they said to each other, Come, let's build permanent places to live. We'll use baked bricks and tar instead of sandstone and mortar. When this was successful, they said, Now that we've built this beautiful city, let's erect a huge escape tower to protect ourselves against any future flood. People from other cities will come to see it and we will become famous. Then the Lord came down to take a look at the city and the escape tower they were building and said, This is only the beginning of what these people will attempt to do. They all speak the same language and if they succeed in this, they'll think that they can do anything they set their minds to. We need to stop them so they don't become proud and forget who created them. Let's confuse their language so they can't communicate so easily with each other. And that's what happened. Suddenly the people started speaking different languages and couldn't understand each other. Building on the tower and the city stopped and people moved away. The area became known as Babylon or Babel, which means confusion, because that was where the Lord confounded the language of the people. It was from there that they scattered around the world. Now, in answer to the question, Sherry, the people who lived on this plain disbelieved God's promise that there would not be another flood sent to destroy the earth. Many of them denied the existence of God and they thought that the flood came from natural causes. So the tower was about their pride in their own abilities and it was really rebellion against God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so when you read that for the first time, you, you might think, well, apart from the rebellion against God thing, um, when people come together for a cause, I mean, we'll look at that in, later in more detail, but um, it doesn't seem such a bad thing. But um, as you as you rightly pointed out, there there was an element of, uh, well, a strong element of leaving God out of the picture altogether, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and doing it, going their own way. And uh, you hear that a lot today as well. I mean, people even sing songs about it. You know, I did it my way instead of God's way. God, there, there is a way that seems right to a man, but what does the Bible say? How does it end up? The ends thereof are the ways of death. Of death, yeah. That's exactly right. Now, Brenton, um, both Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and Genesis 9, verse 1, 
express very clearly God's original purpose for mankind. But beyond what we read in these verses, what was God's ultimate purpose for man? Could you shed some light on that? Certainly. Chapter 1, verse 28 says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. I think, Jerry, that's fairly self-explanatory. It means that uh, we are to procreate. We are to fill the earth, it says, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, at the end of the fifth day, God also gave a blessing or blessed the animals, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. This is an additional blessing uh, because mankind was to be in charge of the world. And the term subdue I found rather interesting. The word for it is is, um, kadesh, and uh, it simply means to bring under control. Now, God's original intention here is very, very clear and restated in Genesis 9-1 after the flood. Can you just imagine for a minute, you're stepping out of the ark for the first time. The world that you were looking at is totally different from the world that you saw when you went into the flood a year or year and a half ago, however long ago it was, a bit over a year, I think. Here, the world is, to- it's, it's a different shape. Uh, the animals are all gone. The only animals that you've got with you are the ones that came out of the ark. Uh, as far as vegetation goes, it's starting to grow, but the world is basically a bare and desolate place compared with what it was when you went into the ark. So I think in saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, God is intending to show that wherever you go on this planet, you are to bear with you uh, the evidence of God's creatorship. I think first and foremost, that's that's what's what's happening here. When you get to chapter nine, verse one, it talks about replenishing the earth. Replenish means to uh, to store up, to make good, to do various other things with it, to fill again. And I I thought when I was reading these texts, in contrast to what Denise was reading, here is God's plan. His his plan was that. His creatorship would be known worldwide, whereas what Denise was reading was a group of people who determined they were not going to shift and they were going to make a name for themselves. There's a total contrast between God's original plan, what these people were doing, and the command that God gives when uh, Noah and his sons and wives and wife come out of the flood or came out after the flood. So I think in summary we could say that God's plan always was that his power, his glory, his creatorship, and let us not forget um, Genesis 3.15, if you're referring to Genesis 9.1, they were aware that there was going to come somebody who was going to write this situation that they were in because of sin. Yes, thank you, Brenton. And, and I think, too, uh, God always wanted for man to take care of the earth. Yes, I believe so. Not to exploit it. Uh, and, and we find in Revelation, the verse that's very interesting, where God says that right at the end, uh, it is time for God to, to destroy those step who in, to destroy the destroy earth. The earth. Mm, that's because, right. And we see that happening too, don't we? Mm. Uh, yes. Yes, Nick. I was just going to ask a, a question. What uh, do we make out of the word subdue it? Because I think that's um, very interesting. Now, uh, uh, we have here some uh, English teachers and uh, most of you speak English uh, as first language, but for me it's a little bit different. You know, when you come across those words, 
uh, you think what's behind it, you know, like, um, because that was an invitation, not only to multiply, to grow, to, but to subdue this earth. What do you get out of that? Then you have a thought? Yes. Well, any gardener would know that you have to subdue certain aspects in your garden to have a successful garden. In other words, you have to get rid of the weeds. Um, it simply means to control, to be in charge. Uh, it doesn't mean to put it down and keep it, keep it um, <clears throat> from developing. No, it's just the opposite. You try to get rid of the bad elements and develop the good elements. Yeah, absolutely. And Brenton, back to you. Yeah, the uh, Hebrew word was kabash, K-A-B-A-S-H. And um, it's interesting. I believe what God was saying to them was this. They were to utilize the resources of the earth in, in such ways as agriculture, mining, and they were also to develop geographical knowledge of the planet on which they were living and that they were also to exercise control over things like mechanical uh, inventions and uh, the scientific discoveries. In other words, God had given them a completely brand new earth, um, perfect, that they could explore, not exploit, explore and develop. And I believe, Nick, that that's probably what he's referring to here, rather than Lenz put it very well when he said it's not to trample under or subjugate. It's an opportunity to explore. But when you come out of the ark in chapter 9, verse 1, <laughs> the um, riches of the earth are hidden. The gold, the silver, and all the other things we're told in the spirit of prophecy were hidden and had to be uh, mined. <laughs> in other words, even though the the uh, quest of knowledge and all the rest of it is ongoing, um, it's it's a very different planet from what it was when God created it in chapter one. Yeah, yeah and I was going when I thought of that. I was just going to say in in regard to. Uh, like I thought it was an invitation for leadership, an invitation yes. to the um, creation, you know, to take lead, to take, you know, to be responsible. And when I say they're responsible in every aspect, not like, unfortunately, after the scene, uh, everything changes, you know, because uh, yeah. we lost a lot of the things which God put it in us, you know, and we became so self, um, you know, selfish and uh, self-oriented and just to do what what's for me but i believe here was an invitation then look this is a beautiful world uh, created for you now you take control of this and uh, lead, it, lead yeah. it was an invitation in you know to lead mm -hmm. it and i think we can we can join this very well and i, I believe we'll dig a little bit more into this in regard to our mission, we are here not just accidental. And if we can do something or not, God's invitation for us is to be heads, not tails. You know, to, it's an invitation to to lead. Nick, with leadership comes accountability, and I think that's uh, that's an important aspect, Jerry, with what we're sure. discussing today. Absolutely, yeah. Now, usually when people unite for a common cause. They can achieve what would otherwise be near impossible. And as the saying goes, there is strength in unity. And uh, sometimes you hear the, the expression, united we stand, divided we fall. However, the building of the Tower of Babel shows us that we can also be united in opposition to God. And this then becomes a quite different call to mission, if you, if you want to use that expression. 
Where in the Bible, pointing to the last days of Earth's history, just before Jesus returns, do we find precisely this scenario, Lynn? Yes, well, I'll uh, answer that question in a moment. But I'd like to say this. I am really surprised that after the flood and after the lesson of the flood, God punishing the people who were so evil, that a mere 150 years or so, I'm not exactly sure of the date, that uh, here they began building this tower uh, in opposition to God. Now, why in opposition to God? God promised he would never destroy the world again by flood. And these people didn't take him at his word, and obviously they didn't build the tower just as a tourist site. They built the tower as a refuge in case there was another flood. So my surprise is that people can disregard truth in such a short time. That's not the only time, and in fact we read in Revelation chapter 13 about a future time, a time that's, if you like, developing right now. And I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 13, verses 3 to 8, and the most important one is towards the end. Here's what the Bible says, talking about the beast. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have, a head, have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished, and listen to this, and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon. Now the dragon represents Satan. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who could make war against him? Quite a powerful figure. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. Here's the punchline. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. That is, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Here in this prophetic book, John was told by God that in the last days, people would be united in worshipping the beast. Now, for those of you who are not sure what the beast represents, it represents a false system of worship. And here, the whole world, apart from those who are committed to the Lord, are involved in this false system of worship. I find this absolutely astonishing, but I think you can see in society now this is developing. People are turning away from God. The fastest growing church, if I could put it this way, in the world is secularism, that less and less people are committing themselves to the Lord and less and less people are going to the church, are going to church. Secularism is growing at a rapid rate. And so here's the Bible predicting people uniting in false worship, not worshipping the true God, but worshipping something else. It's an indictment on society. And we as a panel and Faith FM 
and other radio stations that promote the true worship of God are working hard to bring people back to God, but there are forces dragging people from God. Thank you very much, Len. That was well explained. Now, Lydia, can you read for us uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3? And in what way was God's instruction to Abram a call to mission? Yes, Jerry. Uh, let's read uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whatever curses you, I will curse. So God asked Abraham, whose name he later changed to Abraham, to leave his country and his people to go to another land, an unknown country. It was all part of God's plan to use Abraham as a vehicle to fulfill his divine purposes in the earth. And Abraham went according to the word of God of the Lord. If God had a plan for you or for me, it may be a call for you to leave your extended family and your people and go to a place that he is opening up for you to serve him in order that you can be a blessing to others. So here was God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants uh, that had a specific purpose. He called and commissioned to be uh, agents of God's mission, channels of blessings to the nations. So in the same way, God is calling us to have uh, a meaningful mission to be fulfilled and uh, for us to be used uh, as his church to fulfill his mission. Yes, indeed. Now, Joe, what does God mean when he says that in Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed? What does Abraham have to do with all the families of the earth, especially those of a different cultural and ethnic background, living on earth thousands of years after he died? There are three main monotheistic religions in the world, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. All revere the patriarch Abraham, yet often show hatred towards each other. What don't they understand about Abraham's blessing? I could spend all day on that, Jerry. <laughs> And I think we see some of that in play right now in the news. But I'll start off with uh, with all the families of the earth being blessed. And when God told Abraham in Genesis 12, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed, and he repeated that again in Genesis 22, 18. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now, many think that this is, that it is from Abraham that these blessings flow. You know, they think it's him. But this is not the case. All the nations were blessed or are blessed because of the promise fulfilled in the Messiah who came to save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus, as we know, was born in the fullness of the time. He is that blessing. Abraham was just a man. He was not to be revered. In fact, in Galatians 3, 8 to 9, it tells us the nations are blessed with Abraham, not because of Abraham, or they rather they're blessed with Abraham rather than because of him. Um, 
and I'll read that scripture. It says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, not believing in him, but the fact that he too was a believer. Now, maybe having a faith like Abraham's, a, a heart that sought God, loved God, did he fail in his mission? Well, sometimes, but he never gave up. And having this sort of relationship with God will save a lot of heartache and pain. Now, we all know that human pride causes its own suffering. Now, of the three monotheistic religions you mentioned, Judaism and Islam missed who the blessing is. I'm, I'm talking about the blessing with the capital B. It is the patriarch they revere. They do not recognize the blessing in Jesus for who he is. It is Christianity, while battered and bruised and imperfect, as we all know, has the Savior's name as its, or in its title, as its title. And I guess I could say a lot more, and I'm sure there may be a few more comments. Sure. I think um, what I find very interesting is that uh, all of these three uh, world religions have um, – one element in common that they have a very strong faith, don't they? Whether you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew, you have strong faith. Although I guess today you can see there's a lot of uh, people, probably in all three of those religions, who perhaps don't take it as seriously as they should. Yet uh, there was something about Abraham and, and the faith that Abraham had, and not that we're going to talk about that too much today, but there was something outstanding in his faith. And maybe that's why he was called the father of the faithful and is acknowledged as such. Yeah, Joe. Go ahead, Joe. I don't think it's the faith or the strength of it that's important. We could have any amount of faith, but if it's in the wrong thing, if it's misplaced, it's of little or no use. In fact, it could be the opposite. And so I think even though some of these, some of these religions and all religions of the world, there are some really faithful people and they have a lot of faith but it's in error. It is in a false deity or it's in themselves or, or wherever. If it's not in God, it's completely misplaced and yeah. will be no good fruit. Yeah, no, that, that's true. So, Denise, what was so commendable about Abraham? Can you well, read Hebrews 11 uh, verse 8 and comment, please? Sure. I'm actually going to read Hebrews 11 verses 8 and 9, and I'm reading from the clear word, and it says, when Abraham was called to leave the comforts of his home in Ur to live in tents in a land he was supposed to inherit, he obeyed, even though he didn't know exactly the place where he was going. By faith, he lived in tents in a land God had promised to give him. He lived there as a foreigner together with Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs of the same promise. Now, the interesting thing is that um, God tested Abraham. He gave him this test, and it wasn't a small test. He was required to leave his country, his uh, relatives, his home where he grew up, but he didn't hesitate to obey the call. He had no question to ask concerning the land that he was going to, whether the soil was fertile, whether the climate was good, whether the country uh, had agreeable surroundings, whether there were opportunities for amassing wealth. As far as he was concerned, God had spoken, and as his servant, he must obey. And it seems that the happiest place on earth for Abraham was the place where God would have him to be. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now, panel, I'm just putting a question out to the panel here. 
Um, suppose you were called by God to go, not knowing where you're going. How would you respond and why? Anybody like to answer that? First of, all, we, yeah, first of all, Jerry, we have to identify God's call to be able to recognize God's call. That is his voice and that is his mission to send us. And we will, we, we will have to say, I'm going. I'm ready to go. Yes, for sure. Brenton. Probably the easiest way of putting it, Jerry, would be to reflect on, on my ministry thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, for 10 years of my ministry, I was looking after a church here in Adelaide, uh, together with other churches as well. And at the end of that period of time, we, Lurleen and I, were given the opportunity to uh, go to a couple of country parishes, if I can put it that way. We were offered the choice of two. And what we said at the time is we'll pray about it. And Jerry, this is, this is one of the things I find interesting when people say they are called. God calls people certainly, but he calls them in different ways. One morning I got up, I just could not determine whether I should, um, take the opportunity to accept one of these, um, calls or whether I should just remain where I was. After all, the church was going along well. It had grown significantly during our 10 years there. Um, it was, it was going very, very well indeed. And I thought to myself, well, is God calling me or not? So I placed it in his hands and said, Lord, if the church calls us to go to this particular place, we will go because looking at the pros and cons of going or staying, I could not determine exactly what God wanted me to do. Having spent three years in the parish that um, we did go to, I have no doubt whatsoever that God called me. Now, Abram left her of the Chaldees. He didn't know where he was going. At least I knew where I was going. And... Uh, I wonder at the end of his life, at the age of 175, he passed away. I wonder whether he sat back and said, I can see clearly all the way through the way the Lord has led. I, I think sometimes God says, if if I'm calling you to do something, just go. I will sort out the details for you. You don't need to know the whole map or the whole plan. Just go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes you hear people say, I'm not going to die wondering what if. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Lynn. Well, I'd like to say that Abram, Abraham lived an intense life. However, <laughs> yes, what we're talking about here is this. We may not be called to move geographically. And you, you addressed the question to the panel, but I'm now broadening that. And there are many people listening who... Maybe God is calling them to move from their um, comfort zone. They may be attending a Sunday-keeping church, but they feel the call of God to keep all the commandments and join a seventh-day Sabbath-keeping group. And I believe it's important when we feel that call, we acknowledge what is truth, that we should follow it and not just, dilly-dally and not um, be convicted in something. If you're convicted of something to uh, keep God's holy Sabbath, as the Bible says, you should do it and not keep putting it off. Absolutely. I I 100% agree. And today, if you hear his call, 
Uh, Joe, to that call. Joe wanted to say something, I think. And, and, and Nick as well. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, Joe. I wasn't really. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. But okay, now that you've got me, I, I don't think it's all all that a big deal him leaving Ur because look at what perhaps for that time it was. I'm not sure, but you look at Australia. How many of the faces that we're looking at? You know, they've all immigrated from somewhere. America. These people have moved vast distances, and I think it's in a spirit of adventure and a search for something new. Um, I think it's probably more common now than it used to be, but I, I take your point. I think there's more to um, Abraham Abram moving out of Ur, and I think it was probably the presence of the sin around him that drove him out and then God called him and he moved out of there because I think personally I think we're too comfortable with the sin around us and and his heart was uh, you know for God seeking God and he could he was repulsed by what he saw around him Nick you wanted to say something yes uh, just uh talking about uh, in particular Abraham when we look at his life of course we can uh reflect on that and as Len said he had a quite uh how did you say, Len? Uh, a life of he, he lived an intense, intense life. life. But uh, what I notice is that uh, in uh, Abraham' life, there were moments when they, when he, you know, he acted like each one of us. But he followed God. He wanted to give his life to God, no matter what, even through the disappointments, even through the challenges. What I believe here is very important for me and maybe for you, my dear friend, listening today, is that we need to put ourselves right with God. And I'm talking here about a revival in our hearts, a revival, a reformation if is needed in our life to be able to be part of God's plan. For that reason, I would like to encourage our listeners to grab this book, this offer which we have for today. Actually, it's entitled True Revival, The Church's Greatest Need. I mean, maybe each one of us, we need this. And uh, a revival of, of true godliness among us is the greatest and maybe most urgent of all needs. My dear friend, please send us a text message to the number 0482098383 and the code for this book it's SABS2 SA stands for South Australia BS for Bible study just add number two there no space in between them just put the code SABS2 and the number again it's 0482098383 Thank you, Nick. Now, Len, though Abraham did obey God's call, it wasn't all smooth sailing from there on. I've got two questions for you. What was he confronted with when he arrived at the place God told him to go? And question number two, what do subsequent events tell us about Abraham's faith as recorded in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10, uh, all the way through to 13, verse 1? All right. Well, Abraham didn't know what he was going to end up in. Um, they moved from Ur of Chaldees to the area of Haran, and then it was another 700 kilometers or so to go down to Canaan, the place that God promised that he would give to Abram and his descendants. So he gets down there, 
and um, the place is filled with pagans, just like Ur of Chaldees was. <laughs> in uh, various spots I've been reading, there were these temples to pagan entities, deities, whatever they call them, idols. So that wasn't um, so good. However, we must remember why God sent Abraham there. He was sent as a missionary. He was sent to represent God in this pagan nation. Well, not only that, but there was a drought on in that area. So Abraham gets down there with his family and all his servants and people. He wasn't a poor man by any means. And uh, in order to keep alive and keep their animals alive, they fled to Egypt. Fled not because it was somebody after them, but then in order to stay alive. Now, Abram was married to his, uh, his, his father. Uh, he was married to his half-sister anyhow, let's put it that way. We get down there and obviously Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And he was a little bit worried what's going to happen. Will the Egyptians kill him in order to have his wife? So he, he said that she was his sister, which was half true because she was a half sister, had the same father but different mothers. And so this was told that she was his sister and Pharaoh was impressed from all the reports about her, so he invited her into his court to be his wife. Fortunately, that hadn't happened yet. But God was watching, and God allowed or caused some sort of disease, some sort of affliction to happen to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians were savvy enough to realize this was from supernatural causes, and they put two and two together, and they said, something's wrong here. This is being inflicted on us because something is wrong and it's got to do with Abraham. Well, they eventually realized that Sarai, or Sarah as some people pronounce it, was Abraham's wife as well as being his half-sister. Well, the long, the long and short of it was Pharaoh kicked Abraham and his group out, although uh, the Pharaoh had heaped upon Abraham many gifts, silver and gold and probably precious stones and cattle and sheep and so on. So they left and they went back to Canaan. And you think, well, Abram, he told this half-truth or half-lie, whichever way, way you look at it. But you know, there's something in this story that many people don't realize. Abram was supposed to be God's missionary to represent God amongst the heathen nations. Egypt was a heathen country too. And here he had done the wrong thing by presenting Sarai as his sister rather than his wife, and he got kicked out. Now, how could anything come, anything good come of that? Let me read to you a statement from the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 131. It says there is an interesting similarity between Abraham's experience in Egypt and that of his posterity centuries later. That's Jacob. Both went down into Egypt on an account of a famine and both sojourned or lived there for a while. Through the manifestation of divine judgments in their behalf, the fear of them fell upon the Egyptians and, enriched by the gifts of the heathen, they went out with great substance. Now, it wasn't just fear of them. 
these Egyptians realized that these men, Abram and later Jacob, served God. And in that sense, Abraham fulfilled his um, role as a missionary. And here's my last statement before we move on. God can bring good out of a bad situation, and he did on this occasion. Yes, thank you, Len. Now, Joe, the early church didn't immediately grasp the full extent of God's call to mission. They initially had a very narrow concept of what was expected of them. What caused things to change dramatically? Can you give some reasons? And also, um, it's sometimes said we can't all be missionaries. Do you agree with that statement? There's a lot in there. Um, the early church, as we know, were primarily Jews at the very beginning and as such had inherited the mindset of Israel, that is, as being God's chosen, and the rest, well, Gentiles or the equivalent to the untouchables. So they probably didn't even really initially understand the extent of the Gospel Commission, the idea of going to the uttermost part of the world, teaching and baptising. How did a, a Jewish Christian back then get their head around that? Another thing is also that people in those days didn't really travel far by today's standards. So a couple of things happened or had to happen to change that. Now, persecution was one of them. Many, many, when that started, many of them had to flee Jerusalem and may have not even, um, you know, may not have even been safe for them to be in the less populated or more remote places in Israel. Uh, some may have gone further afield to foreign cities where they were generally better, well, for a time, better tolerated. Um, ironically, talking about persecution, many of the books of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul, who started out as a persecutor and tormentor of Jewish Christians. He came down hard, hoping to eradicate them quickly, and ended up becoming one of them. What a paradox. <laughs> as for the second part of your question, you know, we can't all be missionaries, or can we? Can we all be missionaries? And do I agree with that statement? Well, I'm sure that we could argue this one for a long time. But with regard to comfort zones, I think God asks us to be a missionary in our comfort zone too. To those um, who we have frequent contact with, we don't really need to go that far. In fact, we are a missionary, whether we like it or not. And our example and behavior are preaching to those around us. You know, the, the uh, quote, actions speak louder than words. But there are times when it might take an effort, you know, to actually you might actually have to leave your comfort zone as such um, and step out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Jesus said too, let your light shine. Uh, you are the salt of the earth. In his absence, we are uh, reasonably expected to, to follow in his footsteps and do the work that he did while he was on earth to be an example you know, Jerry, to those around us. Yeah. You know, Jerry, sometimes it's easier. It's easier to be um, a missionary out of our comfort zone than it is in our own comfort zone. Yeah, 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 true. That's very true. Well, we all have neighbours, don't we? We all have people. And family. Living, uh, and family. And family, that's right. So, yeah, no man lives for himself. I've said that before. So you're going to have an effect one way or the other on people around you. And uh, it's up to us to, to make that example a good example and, and a good effect. And why not? Why not? Brenton, what important lesson did the Apostle Peter have to learn about the equal value God places on all people, regardless of their cultural, their ethnic, or their religious background? 
Well, he had to learn a lesson which is recorded in Acts chapter 10, verse 9 to 15. I'll summarize it basically. He was given a vision, and in that vision he saw a sheet let down from heaven. It contained, it contained both clean and unclean animals, and he was invited to rise, kill, and eat. And his comment was, Lord, I have never eaten anything that's unclean. If you study Jewish history, particularly in the period of the Maccabees, you realize that one of the things that the Jews um, particularly adhered to strongly was that they would not eat unclean foods. Here is God using a vision to show him not about animals, as he discovers later on, but about people, that all people are equal in God's sight. The distinction uh, between the clean and the unclean has been abolished by Christ's death on the cross. In verse 28, it says when he came to see Cornelius, and here's an interesting point. When you study the this particular uh, story, Jerry, in Acts chapter 10, the messengers that came from Cornelius, a Gentile, to see Peter, a Jew, did not come into the house. They stood outside the house and called well, it was the someone by the name of Peter living there. In other words, they understood that the Jews' exclusiveness excluded them from allowing Gentiles into their house or vice versa, because if you went into a Gentile's house, you were now unclean. So they were given a mandate, and one of the part of that mandate was that the gospel was to go to the utmost parts of the earth. As um, Joe has touched on so far, it has gone to the Jews, but it hasn't gone any further than that. Now, what you've got here is Peter saying, but God has shown me that I not, should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? It seems as though God needed to do something. Uh, the vision that he gave to Peter was a vision that Peter would have understood strongly in regard to if he was just thinking about food. But it seems as though God had to do something radical to get the Jews to move beyond the confines of Jerusalem. In Back in Acts chapter 7, we have the stoning of Stephen and uh, the great persecution that broke out. So now it goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria in chapter 8. In chapter 10, it is now going to um, the Gentiles. So what lessons can we learn from it? I believe God has got um, the mission of the gospel under control and sometimes he use, has to use, shall we say, out, out of the ordinary circumstances in order to get us to not goad us but to get us to recognise that he is using circum, unusual circumstances to reach people. I found yeah. in my own ministry, Jerry, ministering to people from the African continent and also to indigenous people, they have very different customs and things from what we have. And it's been a blessing to me to be able to learn from them and to be able to share the gospel with them. And as a result, I've made friends in both groups, significant friends that will probably be lifelong friends. I believe that's what God wants us to do in stepping out. Yeah, you have to be adaptable, don't you? Now, Lydia, we've sort of answered this question already, but... um. Uh, where was the best place for the disciples to start witnessing for Jesus? And why do you think that was? And does the same principle apply to us? In Acts chapter uh, 1 verse 8, it says, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in other words, the gospel of Christ is to reach all classes, all nations, all types of tongues and all, all people. So in his mind, when Jesus said this, he portrayed actually three different geographical uh, areas. In Jerusalem, it means exactly where you are, where yeah. you reside, in your own, own home, uh, your church, neighborhood, and your community. Wherever you work, wherever you move, witness over there. The second area in all Judea and Samaria, it means a step further. So witnessing uh, involves to reach out to different social and ethnic and religious groups. And area three, a step three, is to the end of the earth. So God's mission calls us to reach individuals from all places, nations, people groups, languages, and ethnicities. Yes, thank you, Lydia. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, does this mean that our witnessing is largely ineffective if done without the power of the Holy Spirit uh, panel? Yes, Lydia? If I am called to go even over the border to another country or to an unknown place, having in mind the confirmation of God that he will give us the Holy Spirit in order to be witnesses to other people. So it means I have his passport, the green light to go because I'm not going alone, but I'm going to the God's power and through his lead. And I shouldn't be afraid just to be a witness. It means to show through my behavior, through my serving God's character to other people. So it wouldn't be hard. Okay. Just on that one, I think the um, focus is on power from the Holy Spirit. Because uh, these days we do a lot of things because of qualification, because of abilities, because of whatever, you know, we feel very smart these days. And probably we put aside and forgot a lot about the need of the Holy Spirit. I read a book some years ago, uh, and we did a study on that one called The Greatest Need. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit among us all. To be able to be witnesses for God, to be able to really be involved in God's plan, to be missionaries, to be, to do all those things which we already said. I think this is very important. Now, how that takes place? Again, we need to look into the Bible, allow the Bible to speak for that. Because again, there are many people, uh, misapplying uh, or misunderstanding what that means, the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, because when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll be led in the whole truth, not just partial truth. And uh, when the disciples, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they went and they teach and preach everything what God, or Jesus, in that case, had commanded them. It was not just partial truth, just something which I understand. I think this is very important to uh, be blessed by yeah. the Holy Spirit. Sure. Brenton. Just a counterpoint to that one. There is an example in the Bible, a guy called Jonah. 
Now, Jonah was what I call the reluctant prophet. He didn't want to go the first time he ended up in the belly of a fish. The mm. second time he did go, and then when the results didn't turn out the way he expected them to, he was anything other than happen. And yet in the Old Testament, he was probably the greatest missionary there was. So my answer to that would be, um, yes, we do need the power of the Holy Spirit, but even if God has a message to get through to someone, he can even use reluctant people yeah, to get that yeah, message through. Indeed, indeed. And just very quick, uh, Brenton, on that one, because uh, it, not to be misunderstood that, uh, I believe uh, Jonah was still led by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Even not though he that, chose. Nick, I'm just saying he's reluctant. But that's yeah. what I'm saying, because it could be mm. un misunderstood that um, in cases like Jonah or other people who did, uh, uh, who challenged God, put this, put it this way, um, they were still, uh, you know, led by the Holy Spirit, but they um, put their own um, perspective first. And yes. they learn. They learn that quickly. But Joe, in her book, The Acts of the Apostles, Ellen G. White writes, the Gospel Commission is the great missionary charter of Christ's kingdom. The disciples were to work earnestly for souls, giving to all the invitation of mercy. They were not to wait for the people to come to them. They were to go to the people with their message. End of quote. How do you think we as a Christian community living in the 21st century have managed the Gospel Commission? I think we, you give me these big, massive questions, Jerry, that it's impossible to answer in a few words. But I'll start with Matthew 9, where it tells us, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I wonder if Jesus would have felt the same way had he been on the earth today looking around about him. I, I believe so. the work is larger than any one person or department. That means the means of reaching people has so diversified and in many ways made it easier to reach people using technology. And in some ways it is harder. The information is out there. Most people can access it, especially in the West. There are a few areas where it is still closed off, and this is the challenge. But the greatest challenge is stepping forward and not being afraid to tell people you are a Christian because, you know, you just may get some ridicule and mockery or scorn, maybe some repulsion, and with that can come exclusion because many people aren't as open-minded as they'd like to think. So in that sense, our comfort zone may be our limitation if we let it. Now, comfort can compromise mission. And it's like the warning given by God in Revelation where he says, um, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and self to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, this person is completely comfortable and needs not a thing, not a thing that is obvious to them. But God sees them as destitute, wretched, and invites them to come to him for the remedy, the cure for our stupefying, paralyzing comfort. The passage goes on to say, where Jesus knocks at the door, he says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. There's a, a communion there. Christ offers a remedy for spiritual blindness and stagnation and <laughs> addiction to comfort. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we have to be conscious of our situation, don't we? We, we, sometimes we don't sort of see the real picture and it takes a, a wake up call, like a, a, you know, verses like these to, to really put the finger on the sore spot and say, hang on, let's take a, let's take a long, hard look at what's actually happening in your life, where you are and how you're doing. All right. Well, panel, uh, time as always is the enemy. And, um, I'm going to have to close with a, a final comment. Listeners, a Christian's ultimate mission is to participate in telling the world of a loving God who has redeemed us to himself by offering his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, including ours, so that whoever accepts him as their personal saviour will live forever in his presence on a brand new recreated earth. Historically, Israel as a nation was called to be a blessing to the nations around them. In Exodus 19, verse 6, we read, You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In his first letter to God's people scattered throughout Asia, Minor and Galatia, and by extension to us, the Apostle Peter says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. As we see the world falling apart through an unceasing round of war and conflict and the fulfilment of prophecy described by the Apostle Paul as perilous times in the last days, we need more than ever before to be fully focused on our call to mission. Clearly, for those who have eyes to see, we are living in those last days of Earth's history. Let us do our best for the Master in the time that remains to participate in God's final call, proclaiming the gospel message, particularly in the context of the three angels' messages found in Revelation 14, verses 6 to 12. Lynn, can I ask you to close with a prayer? Yes, let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, the truth is that without you we are all doomed to die. We pray to thank you, Lord, that you've made provision for every single person have eternal life by accepting Jesus as their saviour. It's my prayer today that those who are listening to this program will do just that, accept Jesus and receive eternal life. We thank you for your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Amen. Thank you, panel, for uh, your uh, contribution. My dear friend, uh, we're inviting you to join us next time. We are continuing to share on this uh, wonderful topic, uh, God's mission, my mission, and we are going to look about uh, sharing God's mission. Until then, may God richly bless you and have a wonderful, safe walk in the footsteps of Jesus.